Well, welcome to Sojourn. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, man, it's good to be with you this morning on this nice September day that we're having. Uh, and if this is your first time here, just want to say welcome. We're glad that you're here. Would love to, uh, to meet you and get to know you. And hopefully this can be a church community that you can find yourself being a part of. Uh, we really see ourselves as being a family together, of brothers and sisters in Christ, and, and want this to be a place, no matter where you're at uh, in your relationship with God, that you feel like you can be here and ask questions and uh, just continue to journey with us. So we're grateful for each and every one of you that are here this morning, and uh, just excited to be getting into the Word. It's been a few weeks since I've been preaching, uh, so it's good just to be back up here with you guys and open up God's Word this morning. Uh, before we do that, though, if you need a copy of the Bible this morning, would you just raise your hand? We've got a couple of folks that are going to bring a copy of the scriptures around this morning. Um, so if you, we would love for you to have a Bible in your hand um, and just be able to, to read along with us as we open up God's Word this morning. So just keep that up till they find you. And always know that's a gift to you. If you don't actually own a copy of the Bible, feel free to take that. Or if you know somebody that needs a copy of the Bible, feel free to take that and give that to them. As we begin our time, though, let's just go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to, to be with us and bless this time together. Father, we come before you this morning. We give you thanks that we could gather together on this day. And Father, we're grateful for the fact that we have the privilege and opportunity to meet. Uh, Father, 15 years ago today uh, was a very dark day in the life of our country. Some 3,000 people passed away in the blink of an eye. And so, Father, we remember that today. But we're grateful, Father, that you are a God who is in control of all things, that you care for every life, every detail of our lives, that you are a God of grace and mercy. Uh, but Lord, we know that life is a precious gift, and so we pray that even as we get into your word this morning, that you would help us to remember that every second that you give us is a gift of your grace. And so I pray that our minds and our hearts would be attentive this morning, uh, that you'd remove distraction um, if there's things on our, on our minds that are distracting us right now, a conversation we had on the way here, a text message, a, something just going on, that you'd help us just to set that aside and focus today. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would work in this time. We believe that your word, God, is living and active. It's not an old, dead book, but that you've given it to us as your gift to speak to us. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you'd speak to us this morning through the preaching of your word. And as we walk out of here, knowing that we still have breath in our lungs, that we would celebrate that, we would rejoice in that, and that you would do a work of transformation in our lives this morning. Bring peace in our world. Bring peace in our lives. And we pray that we would be shaped by your good word this morning. Revive us, restore us. Do a work today, we pray, for your glory and for our good. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When I say the word uh, journey, probably a lot of things come to, to your mind with this many people in the room. If you were a child of the 70s and 80s, then you probably think of a band called Journey and songs like Any Way You Want It or Don't Stop Believing." If you don't know who that is, I'm sorry, you can go look it up on Spotify or whatever music thing you like to use. Uh, for others of you, though, if you hear the word journey, you actually think of a, a real physical journey, maybe a trip that you've taken or some adventure that you had and memories that you made, whether it was a good experience or a bad experience for you. And still for others of you, you hear the word journey and you kind of go more the existential philosophical route and, and think about, you know, coming to more of an understanding of life or who you are as a person. This church has been on a journey. Four years ago, this church didn't exist. It wasn't here in Fairfax. Next weekend, we're going to celebrate our four-year anniversary as 
a church, and God's done lots of things over the last four years, from a church that didn't exist to seeing all of us here gathered together this morning, Jesus establishing and building his church here in Fairfax and seeing the good news of the gospel go out. That's why this church is here. Our church was started here in Fairfax to reach people with the good news of Jesus, with what we call the gospel, with the reality that all of us, every single person in this room, room is in desperate need for a gracious Savior. The word sojourn means temporary stay or just passing through. It's a word that means that we're on a journey, that we're traveling, that we're going somewhere. It's a word that means that this place is not our home. And so that's important for every single person in this room because whether you call yourself a follower of Jesus or not, whether you claim to know Christ or don't know Christ, the reality is for every single person in this room is that we are all on a spiritual journey. All of us are. Because all of us have thoughts about and beliefs about life and about our existence and our purpose and our meaning. All of us have thoughts about God. Whether we believe God is real and knowable or we don't even know if God really exists at all. We have thoughts and beliefs about God, so all of us are on a spiritual journey. And so no matter where you're at on your journey, again, we're grateful that you're here. We're glad that you're here. We want to journey with you. We want this to be a community and a family where you can, again, ask questions and you can learn about our gracious God. This church and the message that we preach here is not about rules to follow. It's not about looking a certain way or dressing yourself up in a certain way or putting on appearances and pretending to be something that you're really not. This is a a message that we preach or we say that we can come before God as we are. And we want to show you at this church that we have a Savior who is worth following, who's worth living our lives for. We know something that's important to realize about this spiritual journey that we're all on is the reality of the fact that even when we come to know Christ, even if we place our faith in Jesus, believing that he is who he said he is, and he came to do what he said he came to do, that he actually lived a perfect life and he died on the cross for our sin, even when we believe that, we place our faith in Christ, the journey doesn't stop. In a lot of ways, it's just beginning. Because we still have a lot to learn. We still have a long ways to go. See, if you're not a Christian, I want you to know something this morning. The reality is, if, we know, if you know Christ or we know Christ, it doesn't mean that we're a perfect people. Quite the contrary. We are a messed up group of people. And we're still in process. God's still working on our hearts and our lives, still making us to be more like Jesus. We all have room to grow. We still find ourselves being a broken people in the midst of a broken world and an incomplete people, all in need of restoration. So again, no matter where you're at this morning, I hope this can be a welcoming place for you because nobody in this room has it all together. We're all continuing on this journey. And so for the next few weeks, what we're going to do is we're kind of taking a break from a sermon series that we've been in since about April. We've been in a sermon series called The Inverted Kingdom, looking at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous teaching in the Scriptures. And we've been walking through that for the last few months. But we're going to take a break for about five weeks and the reason for that is because I want us as a church to focus in on a particular, a particular topic, a particular area of growth and journeying that I think all of us really need to continue on. Because here's the deal. You've been lied to. You may not know it, but you've been lied to. Our culture has lied to you. The church has lied to you. And both of them have lied to you about what it means to truly be free what freedom really actually is. Freedom in its most simple terms, in its most simple definition, is the idea of being unencumbered and and without hindrance, without being enslaved to something, being truly free. 
And so our culture tells you that real freedom is found in being your own king, making your own way, looking out for yourself above, protecting yourself, and seeking to make much of yourself. Our culture tells us following Jesus and things like that is too constricting. There's too many rules to follow. That's not freedom. That's bondage. So reject that. Walk away from that. And our culture might say, well, yeah, sure, altruism and generosity and service are all good things for you to do, but only within a limitation if it doesn't cost you too much. You need to make sure that you're going to get yours, that you're going to look out for your desires and your wants and need to pursue those things if you want to have real freedom. The church offers freedom as well. The church tells you that freedom is all about knowing and following God. But the church oftentimes hasn't done a good job talking about freedom either. As one pastor says in reference to the church in this area of freedom, he says this, they didn't mean to lie to us. In fact, they had godly intentions and altruistic motivations. They didn't even know they lied. They wanted us to be more holy, more obedient, and more pious. They wanted us to have a clear and strong witness in the world. They hoped we would become lights on a hill. All good things. But frankly, the light has gone dim. The day is far spent. And we are still religious, afraid, guilty, and bound. See, both are lies because both don't actually produce freedom. They produce bondage in your life. But see, what I want us to understand this morning is that what's available to us in Christ, real and true and actual freedom, is one of the most precious and practical gifts that Jesus gives to you. It's one of the most precious and practical gifts that he can give to us, yet many of us don't understand it. We don't embrace it, or we have a completely wrong view about what it actually is. And I place myself in that category as well. See, I'm still on a journey in this also. In my own life, personally, and even as I pastor and seek to counsel and lead our church, really trying to wrap my mind and my heart around what freedom really is and what it really means. In John chapter 8, Jesus makes an important statement. He says to us, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And a few verses later, he says, So if the Son sets you free, then you will be free indeed. If the Son sets you free, then you will be free indeed. And doesn't that sound good? Freedom, real freedom. Listen, I want you to be free. I want you to experience the freedom Jesus offers to you and gives to you. I want you to have that. I want that in my own life. I want our culture and our city and our world to know true freedom. See, the gospel, the good news of Jesus is not a message of bondage. It's not a message of shame. It's not a message of dread, of condemnation, of fear. It's a message of hope and grace and mercy and life and freedom. And so for the next few weeks, in the midst of celebrating all that God has done in and through this church over the last four years, I want us to take some time to talk about the freedom that's available to each and every person in this room, no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey. And if you're new here, I hope you'll stick around with us for the next few weeks for this series. If you call Sojourn your church, my hope and prayer is that God will do a miraculous work in your heart and life as an individual, but also our life together as a family as we walk through his word. So today we're going to begin by looking at one of the most famous parables that Jesus taught on So if you have your Bible, go ahead and flip open to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 32. Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. 
May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. This is a lot of verses. Jesus is telling a story. So listen to what Jesus has to say to you this morning. Starting in verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property, of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when his, this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. My guess is, is that a lot of you are familiar with this story, if not, if not all of it, at least parts of it, whether you call yourself a Christian or not. I mean, our, our culture is, is fairly familiar with this idea of what we call the prodigal son. In fact, the 1992 classic rap song by House of Pain, Jump Around. Anybody know that song? They dropped that line in there, right? Word to your moms, I came to drop bombs. I got more rhymes than the father's got psalms. Just like the prodigal son, I've returned, right? I mean, they, they weave that into their song. It's just a part of, I can go on if you want me to do the rest of the song, but... <laughs> It's a part of our culture. We're familiar with it. We, we, we're, we know this term prodigal son, but really do we get what's going on here? And listen, whether you know this story or not, maybe you're sitting here this morning, and you're like, I've never heard of this, and that's okay. Because whether you've heard it a million times or you've never heard it before, I hope that what we do today as we walk through this is you become more familiar with it and see what Jesus is trying to tell you this morning. Because this is an illustration, but it has a point to it. So whatever your level of familiarity is, I want us to take some time just to walk through it. And yes, this is famously called the parable of the prodigal son, but a better title for this might be the parable of the two sons or the parable of the lost sons. 
And context is key here. If we go back to verses 1 and 2 in chapter 15, Jesus tells us who he's talking to, or Luke tells us who Jesus is talking to. He says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes, these religious leaders, were grumbled. they grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. See, Jesus is all about spending time with people who are currently far from God, but are being drawn to God. And these religious elites, these religious leaders that think they're already close to God, they don't like this. It makes them nervous that Jesus is spending time with these people. And so Jesus often tells stories, or or what we call parables, and he he tells these stories as illustrations to help people understand more of who he is, and to understand the kingdom of God, to understand, more importantly, what the true heart of God is, that particularly the religious people think they already know really well. And so he uses this story to speak to the tax collectors and sinners who are investigating things about God and also to these religious leaders who think they already know everything about him. So let's walk through this story a bit. I want to make sure we understand the, the, the breadth and the depth of what's actually going on here. In verses 11 through 13, we see that there's these two sons. This, this man has these two sons, and the younger son comes to his father, and he says, he says, Dad, I want my inheritance now. What he's essentially saying to his father is, I wish you were dead, because really all I want is the money. I don't really care so much about you. I don't care about a relationship with you. I just want what you can give to me. And the father doesn't argue with him. He gives him his portion of his inheritance. And we see that the son leaves, and he goes his own way to live life the way that he wants to live, free from the authority of his father. He thinks, man, this is the good life. I don't have to listen to dad's rules anymore. I don't have to do what dad says to me. I have everything I need. I'm going to go do whatever I want. And so it says he goes off to a far away country. That's communicating. He had no intention of ever seeing his father again. He, he was like, I'm out. I got what I need. I'm going to go do what I want to do. And it says that he wastes everything on reckless living. This younger son lives a self-absorbed life, a self-focused life, a self-indulgent life. Much of what our world calls us to in verses 14 and 9 through 19, we see that he blows everything. He loses everything, living the life the way that he wants to. And he literally has nothing. He has nothing. And so he realized, I mean, he has nothing to eat. There's a famine that arises in the land, and he has nothing. And the text doesn't say this, but it's likely that he's been partying with a whole lot of people. But the moment the cash is gone, those people roll out. They're not real friends. Because when he's in need, nobody's there to help him. So he has to go get a job. And he's looking for a job, and he finds one of the most demeaning jobs that he could have. Being likely talking to a primarily Jewish audience, this man is also Jewish. And so he goes and gets a job working with pigs, which would have been working with unclean animals. And the thing he's doing with pigs is he's going out in the field and he's feeding them. And he has this moment, you can imagine this, he's down throwing stuff to the pigs. I mean, pigs are Pigs are smelly and they're nasty, right? I mean, they roll around in their own mess and it's just kind of gross. And so he's out there hanging out with these pigs and he's throwing this food to them and he's thinking, man, I'm so hungry. I wish I could just eat a little bit of what they're eating. I mean, that's, that's really being really hungry. He doesn't have anywhere else to go. He just wishes he could have a little bit of what they have to eat as he's hanging out with these pigs all by himself in this field. And he finally comes to himself and he thinks, what in the world am I doing? I mean, my ser- the servants in my father's house have everything they need. They eat better than I. I don't have anything. And I used to be his son. And so he comes up with a plan. He comes up with a plan. I'll go back and I'll confess my sin and my rebellion. I'll let him know the truth about me, that I am no longer worthy to be called his son. And I will beg him 
to hire me on as a servant. So what happens? Verses 20 through 24, we see this son, we can imagine him kind of trudging along. He doesn't have a car. He doesn't have any friends to give him a ride in any kind of wagon or on a on horseback or, or a mule or anything like that. He's just walking along back to his home from this faraway country, going back to his father. And you can imagine him as he's taking step by step, he's rehearsing over and over and over again what he's going to say to his dad. Going before him and, and just wondering, how's my father going to react? I, I wished he was dead, and now I'm going back to ask him for help. Will he hear me out? Will he accept me? Will he reject me? Will he ridicule me? I have so much shame but I'm so desperate. And so he continues on. And as his son, the son crests the hill, looking towards his house that he hasn't been at for some time now, a long way off in the distance, he sees what looks like the faint image of someone running towards him. And he's probably freaking out at that point, wondering, like, I don't know who this is. It's coming to me. I don't know why they're coming. Maybe they're coming to attack me. Maybe they're coming to ridicule me. Maybe they're telling me, look, stop right now. Turn around and go back to wherever you came from because you're not welcome here. You don't belong here. You don't deserve to be here. He doesn't know what he's going to say. He doesn't know what this person's going to say or what he's going to do. But as he keeps walking and keeps looking, this figure is coming closer and closer to him. And all of a sudden, as he gets closer and closer, he realizes exactly who it is. Oh no, it's my dad. Of all people, it's my father that's coming to me. I'm not ready. I need a bit further. I thought I had a bit more time to go to rehearse what I was going to say. I'm not prepared. And so bracing himself to be ridiculed, bracing himself to be, have to have to beg from his father just to give him some food to eat, but he's going to work long days just to have a little bit of food to eat. He doesn't even realize that his father has come up and bear hugged him and is kissing him. And so you can imagine him kind of composing himself awkwardly close to a man that he wished was dead and saying, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But before he can even finish what he's going to say next, his father cuts him off. And he calls out to his servants, who likely ran after him. I mean, you can imagine this guy just takes a tear off of his front porch, and his servant's like, dude, where's this guy going? It was undignified in this culture to run if you were somebody of nobility. So for him just to kind of like hike it up and just start taking off, he probably, the servants are coming after him like, dude, where are you going? What's going on? And so he, he looks back at them, and he, and he says to him, hey, go get some awesome clothes. Kill the fattened calf. We're having a party. We're having a party. Now you can imagine here in our own culture, we don't kill the fattened calf very often, right? So, so you can imagine, what, what's kind of picture this is that the, this guy's in nasty clothes. He's been working with pigs. He has no money. He probably hasn't bathed in a long time. And so he's pretty smelly and nasty looking. His dad says, man, I want you to go buy the best clothes. So think about whatever store you like to buy clothes from. He's going, go get those, the best clothes, whatever you can get from there. And also we're going to throw a party. Here's my credit card. We're going to Ruth's Chris right? It's all on me. We're going to have whatever steak you want, whatever kind of food you want. We are having a party. Now at this point in time, the son and the servants are probably a bit perplexed about what in the world is going on. This is not what the son had in his mind as he came before his father, as he walked along, and these servants haven't seen the son in forever, and are just like, what is this guy doing? And so the father clarifies for us why he's doing this. He said, we're having a party because my son was dead, but now he's alive. My son was lost, but now he's found. He doesn't bring up anything. He doesn't throw his sin in his face. He doesn't ask for an explanation for anything. I mean, this is a picture of mind-blowing, amazing forgiveness and restoration. 
But this isn't just a story about this one son. If we go back to the beginning of this parable, we see there was a man who had two sons. And so just as much as it's about this younger son, it's also about the older son and brother also. In verses 25 through 28, we get a picture into his heart and life. It says the older son and the brother is busy working because that's what he does. And he comes home one day and, and he just hears this, this, this bumping party going on, right? So he hears music and dancing and he's probably like, what in the world is going on? I didn't get an invitation about this. I didn't know this was happening. So notice what he does though. He doesn't go into the house. He doesn't go to find his father to ask him what's going on. He stays outside and he calls for a servant to ask him what's going on. I think that's telling about his relationship with his dad. And so he asks the servant, and the servant comes near to him, and the servant says, look, your brother has returned, and your dad is so excited, he decided to throw this awesome party. But the brother's not like, awesome! It's so great, that's amazing news. He doesn't react in the same way as the father. No, it says he's angry, and he refuses to go in. The rest of verse 28 through 32, we see that the father comes to him, and the text says he entreated him. We don't know exactly what he said, but we know that the word entreat means that he, he implored him. He pled earnestly and asked him earnestly to come in to do something. And so we don't know exactly what he said, but he's, he's essentially begging his son to come in. The father's saying, come in, celebrate with us. Your brother is back and he's okay. It's a reason to have a party. But with seeming coldness, ignoring the pleas of his father pretty indignantly, he says, I have served you for such a long time. I've always obeyed everything you told me to do, and you never gave me anything to enjoy with my friends. But when this son, notice he doesn't call him his brother. Not my, not my brother. When this son of yours, this son who, who's lived such a reckless, sinless, frivolous life, you comes back, you just throw him a party? Imagine there's a few seconds of awkward and sad silence, and then patiently and calmly, the father looks at his older son, and he says, Son, you are always with me. Everything that's mine is yours. Everything that's mine is yours. You could have always enjoyed my things in celebration, but right now, right now is a cause for celebration. Your brother was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost, but now he's found. And that's the end of the parable. Jesus gives no explanation, no commentary on why he shares this story. So what's going on with all this? I mean, and why are, why are we talking about it and talking about a series on freedom that we have in Christ? Well, again, remember this is a parable. Jesus is trying to illustrate something for both of these groups of people and really for you and me today, the so-called sinners and the religious leaders. See, both of these groups of people tended to, tended to live their lives in a certain way, believing that the way that they lived their life was where freedom was found and how it was found. And this is important for you and I to pay attention to because all of us tend towards the same thing in our own lives. See, the younger son is a picture of the sinners. He believes freedom is found by living a life of rejection of rules and commands. He, he seeks to free himself from the authority of his father and to pursue what he thinks is true freedom. He struggles with what we could often call license, living a life of license. The older son is a picture of the religious people. He believes that freedom is found through his actions and his obedience. And he, he seeks to fulfill his duties and believes that he's going to earn acceptance and he's going to earn love and he's going to earn reward and he's going to earn freedom through his work and through his obedience. He struggles with what we could call legalism. 
So what Jesus is showing this original audience, what he's showing you and me today, though, is that whether we tend towards license or legalism in our lives, or we find ourselves kind of ping-ponging back and forth between the two of those things, is that either of them and both of them are a slippery slope, not to freedom, but to bondage. But here's something key we have to see in this, is that the issue that both of these sons have and the issue that you and I have is the same issue. While both of these sons act very differently from one another, there's something common between the both of them, and it's that they both have a wrong view of their father. They both have a wrong view of their father. They both believe that their father is a hard man, that he asks them to do things that are not actually for their good, they're not for their joy. They actually are evidence that he is reluctant, even unwilling to bless them unless they perform and obey. They see him as a prohibitor of love and joy instead of a lover of them. And so they react to the same wrong idea in two different ways. One runs away from him and one seeks to to strive to earn his pleasure and his love. But both are rooted in relationship. The younger son abuses the love and relationship of his father, wishes he was dead. The older son rejects the love and relationship of his father, thinking he has to earn it by what he does. But what they're doing can't be maintained because what they're doing is not what this relationship is built on. It's what this relationship is supposed to look like. In 2005, about 11 years ago, almost exactly, uh, Hurricane Katrina barreled its way up the Gulf of Mexico towards Louisiana and Mississippi. And much of New Orleans is below sea level. So the city had built uh, flood walls and levees around the city to protect the city from uh, if there was water that rose up or or flooding or anything like that. But when Katrina hit and the floodwaters rose quickly and powerfully, those levees and uh, flood walls didn't hold up. They they didn't protect. They were meant to protect the city, but they broke. There's reports that there were some 50 breaches of this levee system. And if you're familiar with Hurricane Katrina, you know the result was catastrophic. Much of the city, the majority of the city was flooded. And in some places it took weeks for the water to recede. Many people died. Over a thousand people died through this hurricane. And many experts say that at least two-thirds of the deaths in Louisiana alone in the greater New Orleans area were a result of levee and flood failure. They could pinpoint it to that. If that hadn't happened, if those levees had held, if those flood walls had held, then these people would still be alive. See, these levee systems had been put in place. They appeared to be sufficient to protect the city and its people. People drove by these all the time. They were part of the regular scenery of being in that city, in that town. They saw these walls. They saw these levees and believed that I don't have to worry about anything. This is what they're supposed to do. They're in place to do this. They gave the appearance of safety and sufficiency, but the reality is they were completely insufficient. When the storm surge came and the floodwaters rose, they couldn't be sustained and the walls broke and a torrent of destruction and death came rushing through. See, what we see in this parable is that Jesus is trying to show us that when we have a wrong view of the Father, when we tend towards living a life of license or legalism, it might appear good, it might appear safe, it might appear helpful, it might even appear enjoyable and freeing at some point, but it can't last cannot be sustained. It will not end in our freedom. It will not end in our joy. It will not end in peace for you. It will end in bondage and destruction. Because here's the deal. When you've lived a life of license in relation to your relationship with God the Father, what ultimately ends up happening and produced in your life is shame and guilt. 
when you've kind of gone your own way, thinking, I'm just going to reject everything that God has for me. I don't believe it's any good for me. And you run away like the younger son, but then you come to realize that these things are not fulfilling. When I live a sexually promiscu- have sexual promiscuity in my life, promiscuous life, I realize it's not filling, it's draining, it's, it sucks the life out of me. When I pursue money and wealth and realize I never have enough, it sucks the life out of you. It's just bondage in your life, and so you start to realize, man, I haven't been relating to God in the right way, and I, but now I feel shameful, I feel guilty coming back before him because of the way I've been living. This is the issue with the younger son. When you've lived a life of legalism in relation to the Father, in relation to God, it often results in dread and fear. Because you think, I have to perform a certain way. I have to live up to God's standards in a certain way. I have to bring my obedience before Him. And I haven't read my Bible enough today or this week. I haven't served enough. I haven't given enough. I haven't shared the gospel enough with people. And so I just feel like God doesn't love me that much. There's this dread, this constant fear in your life over you. And we see that with the younger, I mean, with the older son. He, he doesn't have a good relationship with his dad. But what both of these guys did and what we often do is they disconnected the father's good commands from their father, from his person, from who he is. And that caused relational disconnection from him as well. And you and I do the very same thing with the same results. We hear of an all-powerful God and we either tend to believe that his commands are oppressive and so we run from him or we believe that his commands are our means of earning favor and love from him, which we can never quite do. We can never quite live up to. And the result from that belief is that it produces shame and guilt or dread and fear or some combination of the two in our lives. Why do we do that? I know a lot of you guys in this room, you, you know the gospel. You know what Jesus has done for you. you you've, you've trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. You believe you have new life in Christ. So why do you do that? Why do I do that? I think it's because we're embarrassed and we're fearful to come before our good Father. And the reason that we do that is because we forget how much He actually loves us. We forget how much He actually loves us. So what Jesus is doing here is showing us who the Father really is and what the Father does. Our good Father, the Heavenly Father, God the Father, is a Father who gives freedom, and it's freedom that's born out of love. What does the Father in the parable do? What do we see Him do? He's looking for his son. He he pursues. He literally runs to him. He lavishes love. He's patient. He pursues his other son. He goes out to him. And he pursues him and he entreats and he corrects and he's present. Jesus is painting a picture for us of what God the Father is like. This is our God. This is who he is. This is what he does. But see, legalism and license are really two sides to the same coin. They're both rooted in a wrong view of who God is. And this is where you and I have been lied to. We don't need to find a balance between license and legalism. I think so often in the church we say, hey, you can't go too far over this way towards license or you'll be living a reckless life and God's not going to be happy with that. But we can't go too far towards legalism because it's not about obeying and earning God's favor. So we need to find some middle ground in the middle and just trying to make sure we're trying to walk that middle road here. But this isn't about balancing anything. This isn't about finding the middle road. This is about God's grace. It's about his love for you. So we can take that coin that on one side is legalism and one side is license, and we can chuck it and get rid of it. Because God's calling you to walk by gospel grace and gospel freedom down the road to the Father who loves you. Who loves you. 
God gives you freedom in that. See, the freedom given to us in and through the gospel is not freedom to obey. The freedom given to us in the gospel is not freedom to sin. We're trying to find some balance between the two of those. The freedom that comes in the gospel is freedom to love and more importantly, to be loved. To be loved. See, you and I need a renovation of our view of God. We need a renovation. And the best place to begin to see that take place is by looking to what the Father has done for us in and through Jesus. Last week, we looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, where the Apostle Paul says, For our sake he, the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you are in Christ, if you're united to him by faith, what God sees when he looks at you is not your mess-ups, is not your sin, is not your rebellion, is not your unbelief. What he sees is the perfect record of Jesus. You're literally clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Jesus' perfect record, his perfect life. And he goes beyond that, that Jesus paid in full for your rebellion and for your sin when it was all nailed to the cross. But see, I think our problem and the problem of the younger brother and the problem of the older brother is that we think God reluctantly loves us. He reluctantly loves us. As somebody in our community group this week says, we, we kind of feel like God's sitting there with his finger on the smite button. Right? He's like, uh, do I press it? Do I not press it? He kind of messed up pretty big this time. Do I, do I press the smite button and the wrath button to destroy you to make your life miserable. I think we can feel like God does that. We can believe that God the Father has to be persuaded to love us. And sometimes he's still not sure if he made a good choice in loving you and saving you because of the life you live. We can believe God is reluctantly gracious. So what does that do in our life when we tend towards that? It causes us to be suspicious and scared and full of shame and dread when we think about approaching our God here and now. And so we either run away from him or we keep trying to earn our favor to prove our worth to him. That God, it wasn't a waste of your time to love me. Look what I can do for you. See, when we do that, we forget that there's a third son in this story. God's only son, his perfect son, his son who God the Father sent to rescue you from your sin and to rescue you from yourself. The son that he sent to revolutionize your view of who God is and the love he has for us. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 through 10, the apostle John tries to explain this a little bit more to us. He says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we, so that you and I might live through him. And check this out. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. To pay the penalty for our sin. See, Sojourn, we need to understand our, our sin and our rebellion before God is real. And it is infinite. It creates this infinite chasm between us. And it's not, it doesn't put us on an equal playing field. Where we're on one side and God's on the other side. And we just need to figure out how to get across. No, we're, we're infinitely far down from God. And God is high and lifted up. And we're eternally and infinitely separated from him. Our sin is real. Our rebellion is real. But God's love and his grace is infinitely and amazingly able to overcome that distance and that chasm. It's magnificent. 
See, the reason that the gospel is such good news is that it actually acknowledges the fact that you are weak and needy and sinful. That you're a helpless orphan birthed into a fallen world of darkness and death, alone and hopeless. But God, but God in his infinite grace and his mercy and his love came to you to make you his very own child. To call you his son, to call you his daughter. See, your brother Jesus obeyed perfectly and paid completely for your rebellion so that you could be embraced by your heavenly father no matter what. As Thomas Aquinas once said, the cross did not secure the love of God, but the love of God secured the cross. Man, that's huge. Do you get that? Do you get what he's saying there? God doesn't love you because of anything that you do. And get this, God doesn't even love you because of what Christ did for you. I think some of us need to wrap our minds around that. If you've been a Christian for a long time, God does not love you because of what Jesus did for you. No, God loves you because he is love. When we look to the cross, we see a picture of that love because he sent his son. For God so loved the world, he sent his son. That's why his son came is because he already had that love for you. So listen to me this morning. Hear this for the first time or the thousandth time this morning. God loves you. God loves you. And if you ever doubt that, look to Jesus. God has made his love abundantly clear in sending Jesus to you and for you. See, neither of these sons wanted to go to the Father. Neither of them wanted to go. And a life of license led to shame, and a life of legalistic rule following led to dread. And I think we've all probably dealt with that at some point in time. My guess is, in a room this size, that there are many people in here right now that are running from God. You're running from him. You're tired of failing and faltering, and so you just, you know, just forget it, and you're just running away from him. And at the very same time, there's probably a group of us in this room right now that, that just feel like, man, I don't live up to God's standards enough. I just continue to fall and fail, to, fail along the way, and I feel scared to come before him even. And I say that because I've been there. I've been there in my own life. There's been so many things in my own life, whether it's sexual sin or anger or laziness and just this idea in my mind that I felt shame and guilt and dread and fear and coming before, the, before God because it's like, look how I messed things up again. I did it again. I got angry at my kids again. I struggled with this particular thing again. I'm wrestling with pride again. I messed up something in leading in the church again. I'm just screwing it up. Man, do you ever feel that way? See, the enemy knows that. And the enemy sows those seeds into your life like, really, you're such a screw-up. Why don't you just ditch this whole thing? Or, really, you're such a screw-up. Don't you need to work a little harder, try a little more before you go back to the Father again? And here's one of the even worse things that sometimes I think Christians are the ones that do that. To make you feel shame, to make you feel guilty, to make you feel like you're not living up to the picture of what it actually means to be a follower of Christ. But listen to me this morning, grace destroys both of those things and gives you freedom because the loving Father pursued his children. See, there's only one cure for both legalism and dread or license and shame, and that is understanding the love of God made manifest in the gospel. It allows you and me to walk in the love of the Father who beckons you to come close and to be real. The Father offers you freedom. He offers you freedom. And this freedom is for anyone and everyone. God's grace and love comes to you without conditions. 
And so if you're not a follower of Christ, or, or maybe you've thought you were a follower of Christ for a long time, but something in you this morning is just is clicking and you're thinking, you know what, this isn't what I've thought before. Maybe what I've believed before was a false gospel or I had a false view of who God was. Let me just simply invite you to come to him today. He wants you. He wants you. No matter how much or little you have, no matter how much or little you know, no matter what you look like, no matter what your ethnicity is, no matter what your background is, no matter what you've done, come to him. He wants you. While you were still sinning, Christ died for you. While you were unwilling to come to the Father, he came for you. See, Sojourn, the amazing reality of the gospel is that you are far worse than you think. You are far worse than you think, but at the very same time, you are far more loved than you can possibly imagine. And the freedom that comes in and through the gospel is the reality that you are fully known by God. There's nothing that you can hide from him, yet being fully known, you're still fully loved. You're fully loved, and that should give us such freedom. As a friend said this week in a text message, the breadth of our sin can never exceed the reach of God's love. And do you believe that this morning? Do you truly believe that? I hope that you'll believe it today. You know, sometimes being a Christian is hard. Sometimes it's hard, but maybe that's because we don't know what it really means to be a Christian. If all that Christianity in the church is is a nice man standing up in front of a group of nice people telling you to be nicer, then it's completely worthless. Completely worthless. But if Christianity and the message of the church is the radical message of grace and freedom that says to you, you're not nice, you're dead. And you need new life. And God gives that to you. And he lavishes his love on you. And he gives you grace. And he gives you freedom. If that's the message of Christianity, then it's revolutionary. Listen, don't exchange the truth about God for a lie. Don't exchange it for a lie. The heart of the Father towards you is infinite love and grace, and he is standing on the porch looking for you to come to him, and in coming to him, he is running to you. So let me ask you, do you believe that God is your Father and that he loves you without reservation and without condition? Because tomorrow morning when you wake up and you're believing that, and you end your day and you're believing that, it doesn't matter then what kind of day you've had. Whether it's been a really great day or a really terrible day. Whether you sinned a little or you sinned a lot, it doesn't matter. It frees you from shame and it frees you from dread because you know that you are truly and dearly loved. So walk out of your prison of shame and guilt today. Walk out of your prison of fear and dread today. Come to the Father who loves you and come as you are. Friends, be free. Be free and come to the Father who cares greatly for you. We're going to come now to communion, to the table. We do this every week as a church. And the reason we do this every week as a church is not for some religious activity. This doesn't earn anything for you. The reason we do this every week is because it preaches to you and it preaches to one another, and it, it testifies to the fact that as we eat that bread and as we drink the cup, that we have a picture of Christ's body broken for us and Christ's blood shed for us. It testifies to the fact that our sin has been paid in full by the perfect Son, and that we have a Father who loved us so much that He was willing to send His Son as a sacrifice for our sin. A Father who loves you fully and completely and invites you to come to him. So I want to invite you to the table this morning. I want to invite you to come and be reminded again of what Jesus has done for you. And I want you to leave your shame in your seats. 
I want you to leave your dread in your seat this morning. Let go of it. Be free from it. And come and be reminded of the love that God has for you. And if you're not a follower of Christ, we would just ask you this morning not to come forward to the table. We're not trying to be exclusive, not trying to make you feel weird. There's going to be so many people moving around. Nobody's going to notice. We're just going to ask you to hang out in your seat. Because maybe you've come here this morning and you're thinking, well, I'm not really a religious person. Or maybe you come here this morning and you're thinking, man, I am kind of a religious person. Maybe you're irreligious or religious. It doesn't matter where you're at in this idea of who God is. I'm not offering you this morning to be religious. And I'm not calling you to be irreligious. I'm offering you Jesus. I'm inviting you to come to Jesus. I want you to take Jesus today. I want you to experience a relationship with the living God. And so this eating and drinking doesn't accomplish that for you. It's sitting in your seat and praying and going to the Father and acknowledging your need for Christ. Turning away from your sin and believing that Jesus died for you and that you need that grace. So let me invite you, if you don't know Christ, just to sit in your seat and do that today. If you're ready to start that relationship with God, you can do that sitting in your seat. Let somebody else know that you've done that. Let somebody else know if you have questions about that so that we can walk with you in it. Those of you that will come forward, you can come to the front or head to the back and tear off a piece of bread and take a small cup to drink. And what Jesus has done for you will be spoken over you today. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we say this simply, nothing in our hands we bring, simply to the cross we cling. And we just want to praise you today. We want to praise you and give you thanks for your radical love for us. We want to thank you for the freedom we have, a freedom to love and be loved by you. Father, I pray that you'd help each and every one of us to walk in that freedom Set us free from shame, those of us that are struggling with that. Set us free from guilt. Set us free from dread. Set us free from fear. And help us to come to you and be embraced by you and walk with you, knowing that we can be in your presence and enjoy all things from you. And Father, I pray that we would be a church where we champion the message of freedom, that we champion the message of grace in Jesus, and that you would set more and more people free in this city because we're here. Father, we thank you for your love for us. Help us now to continue to celebrate as we take communion together and continue to sing together. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.